I've got a passion for food. And I've always I've always known good food and bad food. And uh, yeah, when then working in restaurants, you 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 end up learning about food because if, unless you walk around with your eyes closed, um, you're an idiot not to learn to see how people are doing things. Welcome to the How They Lead podcast, hosted by Benjamin Wade and Ben Stocken. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the world of high performance, showcasing examples of how individuals and teams can reach their full potential. Together, they'll be inviting amazing guests who have defined or represented high performance in their own right. From world record breakers to individuals who have achieved first in their fields, the How They Lead podcast will showcase a diverse range of guests, each with their unique stories and insights to share. So join us as we challenge traditional ways of doing things, explore new ideas, methods and possibilities, and evolve the way people perform. Alex, thanks very much for joining us on our podcast, How They Lead. I'm really looking forward to this uh, this episode, and we'll delve into your background shortly. But you're one of many inspirational people that we've had onto our podcast to talk to us, where we can hear from your background and your neat, unique experiences. And this is going to be no different. So welcome. Thank you for your time. I know that Ben's going to delve into a little intro and, and kick off this episode. Yeah, Alex, thank you. Um... Hey, hey, thank you so much for, for, for taking the time. And I think, you know, we've had, we've had athletes, we've had coaches, we've had business people. We are yet to have a chef patron on our, uh, on our podcast. So it's going to give us another angle to, to leadership. So Alex Aitken, patron head chef of the Jetty. It'd be great to hear a bit about, about your story and where you, where you started from up to today, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, it's, just going to hit my 65th birthday next week. So it could be a long story, but I'll try and cut it <laughs> short. Um, born um, from Scottish parentage, father from Edinburgh, mother from Dunbar, which we'll come back to in a bit. But father in the RAF, so I was born in Aden in today's world. That's Yemen. But I do think I'm Scottish, not Arabian. But travelled a lot with dad in the Royal Air Force. was brilliant. The best years were three years in Singapore, which were amazing. And probably what first turned me on to food, because food was amazing. And then... Yeah, normal schooling, grammar school, moved around a lot with the Air Force uh, and ended up in Southampton area, or Romsey, which is fairly local to where I am now, and uh, muddled through the end of school. The year before school finished, I went up to see my grandmother. It was partly because I was being a bit of a hooligan and they sent me up to Scotland to Dunbar and um, I got a trip out on a fishing trawler. Loved it. So I asked, got to go again and again. And after two weeks of being a tea boy, and this is age 15, um, two weeks being a tea boy, and they said, look, the, the, the lads have to have their holiday, and you're a big lad, and you're helping us shoot and haul the nets. Could you do four weeks and um, cover the lads' holiday? And they said, we'll give you a half pay. Um, and bear in mind, this is now uh, 50 years ago, and half pay was £200 a week, cash in hand. And um, so I said, yeah, I'll do it. School can wait. And um, so I delayed going back home and back to school. And I did those four weeks as a proper deckhand, shooting nets, hauling nets on a, on a very small trawler up and down the Firth of Forth. 
And um, I said, look, when I leave school next year, can I come back and do the season? They said, yeah. So as soon as I'd done my O-levels, I jumped on a, a coach straight back to Dunbar. My first job on leaving school was working on a fishing trawler, the Norwood, out of Dunbar. Amazing experience. What a fascinating story. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how, do, you go from, how do you go from catching fish to, to chefing? How did you get there? Uh, I came back to live with mother. Um, mother and father had gone different ways by then. And um, that was down Romsey Way. Got a job um, in, in a restaurant to earn money and um, primarily though as a waiter and um, worked my way up to you know, the waiter, senior waiter, restaurant manager, uh, maitre d' and um, yeah that was moving jobs and like everyone does in our industry uh, but it wasn't until I, I, I met this guy Jean-Claude Denat and his wife Tessa at a restaurant called Le Chanticleer and I really got on well there and had a bit more structure to my life and uh, I'd met and married my wife by then as well, Caroline. And um, that they sold that restaurant, but I'd, I'd, I'd been running it for them. And they were selling it. And I took my wife, Caroline, up to London with my redundancy. We ate at Le Gavroche, which was the only three-star Michelin in the country. Blew most of the redundancy. <laughs> and, um, but it was amazing. And I said, come let's go and open our own restaurant. And... That's sort of where it starts. We found a little place in Brockenhurst, a little cafe it was, but we bought it. Caroline was then eight and a half months pregnant with son AJ, another Alex. And um, we we opened a restaurant. And because Chanticleer was a nickname of Cockerel, we called our restaurant Le Poussin, which is a spring chicken. And it was we, we made money from day one. Uh, we had lots of interesting conversations with um, VAT inspectors and things like that because I, I didn't have a proper business background. I knew I could run a restaurant. But the other thing is I bought two sets of chef's whites, a couple of cookery books, and I went in the kitchen and I'd never cooked before professionally. I hadn't done much cooking at home, I don't think. Uh, so Caroline with a bump was out front meeting and greeting and taking orders and I went in the kitchen and cooked. Was that where your passion for food started from from that point when you bought those two chef whites or was it back on board the boat? Were you cooking the catch? I've always had a passion for food and I've always I've always known good food and bad food and uh, yeah when then working in restaurants you 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 end up learning about food because unless you walk around with your eyes closed and you're an idiot not to learn to see how people are doing things and um Yes, and it, yeah, the TV was full of food pro, was starting to be full of food food programs, not as big as now. And I loved the uh, Graham Kerr, Galloping Gourmet, and all those sorts of things. But I just I loved cooking, and I, it it found me, and I found cooking. We then got some recognition from the Good Food Guide, and as it was then the Egon Rone. Then there was a drive to get a Michelin star, and um, that that was that was hard. It was really hard, and um, so close yet so far. And um, had a monumental choice in my life in the late or middle of the eighties with Caroline, and I said, "Look, I'm done." And we we found the buyer for our restaurant, an Indian restauranter, and I was going to sell the front of the restaurant, but we'd expanded a little bit to the side and the back, and I kept the back on. I said, "I'm just going to open a little twenty-five cover restaurant, cooking my food my way, and if you like it, eat it. If you don't, yeah, do one." And that's what we did. And um, eighteen months later, I got that Michelin star. Uh, shock. Um, Jean-Christophe Novelli, great mate of mine and a two Michelin star chef at the time, he phoned me to tell me I got it. I was gobsmacked. Um, 
And that was it. We were doing 24 for lunch, 24 for dinner every single day, closed two days a week for a days off. Um, I was in the kitchen with a, a young lad. And Caroline was in the restaurant with our eldest son, Justin. And then 1999 came, jumping forward. And I was just turned 40. And I thought, oh, I can't just do this. It's, it's, there's no real end game because it's, it's only ever going to be 24 covers for lunch, 24 covers for dinner. We're having a great life, but there was no, no end game. And so I was offered a hotel called Park Hill, which um, I looked to buy. Bank manager said, look, you won't be able to buy it unless you can sell your restaurant. You won't be able to sell your restaurant and open up 10 miles down the road. No one in the right mind is going to let you do that. Uh, he said, find an investor, find another room. I went to two or three people, which were customers and friends. Uh, and one was a guy called Jim Ratcliffe, the hotel in particular, Park Hill Hotel. He had fondness for it. He used to stay there when he first moved to this area. And so we bought it in partnership, yeah, Caroline and Alex and Jim Ratcliffe. Took the Michelin star there and held it there for five years. Um, got planning permission. And I drove all the planning permissions and everything through um, New Forest District Council. Got planning permission, builders, contractors, architects. Um, we set about to remodel it, ended up rebuilding it. And whilst we did that, um, I could not work. I loved my work and I need to keep my reputation. So I said to Jim, we need to buy another hotel. Um, Jim was a man of wealth. And um, so we bought the Whitney Ridge and I moved all my team, all my venues, everything from Park Hill to Whitney Ridge. Got my Michelin star there. So I had a Michelin star on three different properties, which was quite good. And whilst doing Whitney Ridge, we spent 70 million of Sir Jim now, um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's pennies on building Limewood, which is the only five-star hotel in the New Forest, and it's absolutely beautiful. And then we also converted Whitney Ridge into the pig, bringing Robin Hudson on. Um, so that was another institute. And then I thought, I'm done. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I'm done. I probably burnt myself out. So I also did a hotel in Courchevel in France, which I'm again, project managed from the client perspective um, with Sir Jim's money. And I did his personal chalet in Courchevel as well, uh, organising teams, interior designers, architects, builders, everything. So so that's a that's a, a pretty like varied skill set, Alex, in terms of like chef, the creative side, the the working under time pressure and, and running a team, but then the the building, the project redeveloping manager. side, project manager, etc. So it, I've I've got one question straight off. I know we haven't finished the journey, and I, and I want us I want us to get to the end, but there's a burning question in me straight away, which is um, it kind of ties into a question we ask every guest on the podcast, and that's so what's your approach? What's your approach then to to leading people? Like, what's your kind of core approach to how you lead people, whether it's, you know, on a remodeling of a 70 million pound hotel or whether it's in the kitchen? How do you do that? I try to do it friendly. Um, I'm a Torian, and so I am quite stable and um, steady. However, if I don't get what I want, I become very bullheaded, bullminded and very stubborn. And I can be very, very tough, but I prefer to do it. Um, by getting people to join me on the journey. Um, and project managing, I mean, as a chef, you project manage every day because you've got to get all the ingredients in. So it's, it's a, it's a, it sounds a, a different skill set. It's not really just, just you're not dealing with in, ingredients, which you do when you're a chef. When you're project managing building sites, you're dealing with materials. And how do you, know, how do you ensure that people know what you require or the standards you require is that leading by example or do you expect people to come 100 percent lead by example um, and 
especially in the early days. Um, and, and when I was doing those projects, I would I would like to be first in the meeting and last out of the meeting. Um, that's I think that's critical. Yeah. And running the restaurants, it, I, I, I direct more now than actually in and physically you know, run the kitchen. Um, but yeah, when I was running my own restaurants, I was the first person in that kitchen and the last person out. And do you have a sort of sense of the values that you live by? Because it sounds like hard work, dedication, almost a sense of purpose, especially on being on that, that fishing vessel back in the day. Those things really resonated with me from the way that you're describing it and seem to follow you through your career as well, especially that hard work, passion, dedication. Are there certain values that you live by or do values come into how you operate? I completely live by those values. I, I'm very lucky. I absolutely adore my work. I adore the creativity of cooking. I adore bringing teams up and, um, and motivating them. I mean, there's a young guy that when I took over the jetty in Mudderford, the young guy called Craig McComb. He was sous chef under the head chef, and it was then run under Gary Rowe um, stewardship. And um, I was the replacement. And, and, and Gary's a much bigger um, TV personality uh, chef, but I was a local personality chef, and I just brought local business, which is what it needed. But Craig was sous chef. I made him head chef. And this is 13 years ago, and I sat. Gary Rhodes' head chef, because I didn't want, well, Gary does it like this. I didn't want that kind of atmosphere. But Chef, um, chef Craig stayed with me. Um, we've opened other jetties and other restaurants for Harbour Hotels. He's now the executive chef of the Christchurch Harbour Hotel. He's since got married, bought a house, had two children. And I think I helped him in that journey, because with me, he's progressed so much in his, in his job, has, he has done in his life. And he earns enough money to do all that. And um, those sort of, those successes are big tick boxes in my life. You can really see that passion in your eyes as well. When you tell that story, you can hear yourself getting, mm-hmm. reliving those moments. It's, uh, it's nice to see, especially, yeah, seeing that passion in your eyes and what we can see from here. Yeah. And I, I think that I had a preconception about chefing. I think. And it wasn't a preconception about you, Alex. It was maybe it's from like the Gordon Ramsay kind of, you know, TV kind of shouty lead the lead the kitchen you know rule with an iron fist and th- there's an, a little bit of that that you you kind of shared that you know if, if you don't get things standards right surprise. your standards you can be quite quite bullish about that but what i'm what i'm hearing from you is 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 way more you've said motivating nurturing you know providing people opportunities to develop their lives so like you said at the very beginning you know you were quite lead from the front how have you how have you managed that tra- transition yourself from Lead from the front to, as you said, more direct and and delegate. That was that was really hard to let go. Um, when I was running Le Busan, um, I worked every single shift that business was open. I, if if I wasn't there, it wasn't open. And then we went into the hotel and bought what was Park Hill, and I would work seven days a week, rarely have a day off. And um, but I I learned something then because it was bigger and it was breakfast, lunch and dinner, seven days a week, throw in an odd wedding or two and uh, conferences and things like that. What I learned then was I was losing members of my team because I never let them have responsibilities of what I was doing. And I was employing good people. I mean, they were better trained chefs than me. I've I've never worked for another chef. I only ever worked for me. Um, And I learned then to step back a little bit, show them what I wanted, um, let them show me what they could do. And it became much more team than individual. And that was a big learning curve. And um, yeah, to and I have it today, I've got a great head chef at the Jetty in Southampton. And he tries to do everything. I keep saying to him, 
your team think you don't trust them. So you have to, even if they make a mistake and you're there to correct the mistake, but you have to trust and allow them to start doing what you do because that's actually what they want to do. So, yeah, I, I took a change in life when I became more of a businessman. And working with Sir Jim Ratcliffe, you have to take a change in life because you, you're running left, right, and centre doing a million things at once. Uh, just on that, on your, on your leadership style, I was just thinking as you were telling us your story and, and started with the, the Air Force. I mean, I can resonate with that, spending almost 12 years in the Air Force myself. So I, I was going through my officer's training and obviously you have to have respect, integrity, a sense of pride and purpose. Do you think yourself being around that, that military sort of family way of working and lifestyle has shaped, especially your, your initial younger years, into what you've now become? Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, it's even down to um, going out and running a restaurant. Um, I knew all about cutlery because, yeah, you went to the Christmas mess dinners for the family and you had all this silver cutlery and you had to learn what Brilliant. to use and where to yeah, use yeah. it from. You know, it was, it was yeah, the, the, yeah, watching the parades and everything. Yeah, I think it's that discipline. I mean, I... The standards and discipline. Tried Boy Scouts, tried Sea Scouts, and I didn't like those. But I grew up with it happening all around. Yeah, yeah. So you've instilled those standards and values, yeah. and that's reflected back into how you lead and yeah. how you operate today, making sure those standards are as high as possible. Yeah, I mean, we've got an, an Australian who's just employed as a barman, and I should maybe shouldn't say this, but you can edit it. But yeah, every time I walk in, he goes, "G'day, mate." I just say, "Look, I'm really <laughs> sorry. I am not mate. I am chef, or I'm Alex." And he went, "Oh," <laughs> and, but he took it. Um, yeah, I just couldn't couldn't face it. Yeah. I think there's 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 some interesting there's like there's such richness for me in, in what you're saying. So Alex, for you, like you know, we uh, some of our listeners will be people that that hopefully we've we've worked with as well. And I think we we often hear trust being pivotal and foundational in terms of building teams to achieve more than the sum of their parts. But actually, something you just shared in terms of people getting in the way of creating that trust by trying to do too much themselves. And you shared earlier that actually, like there was an amount of attrition in your kitchen because you're employing good people who had skills, who wanted the opportunity to grow and develop. But actually there's always, as the person who starts something, there's always that temptation to say, well, I can do it better, faster, my way. So the quickest route from A to B is a straight line. And, and the reality you shared is actually when you're employing good people, we need to role model that teamship. Like we need to role model that we can be a good teammate and actually we can follow them sometimes mm. to give them the opportunity to succeed. Um, I think that that's a really interesting thing for, for our listeners to take away. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, what, that's what, what we do. And I think that is, it is, it is key. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's like running any business or any sport. I mean, I did a conversation like this um, live in front of um, training Football managers, um, the FA, um, asked me to do it. They had a whole group of um, training coaches and they wanted me to talk about what I do in a kitchen and how I lead kitchen teams. Um, and it's not that different from leading a football team. I, I like the example that you mentioned about um, followership when we first started talking. You mentioned that you had to actually look up the definition of followership and work, and work out what it was. Yeah. But then in your intro, you went to explain exactly what you did in the kitchen and that was followership to a T, really, knowing and being humble enough to know that the experts are those working within the kitchen and actually that they're teaching you sometimes. Oh, yeah, very You're much getting so. that. So, and that, was, that for me was, was something that we can take to our clients and use that exact case study to explain what effective followership is. But you see that on a daily basis. Do you see times or kitchens where followership isn't working so well? Yeah, I think those are the, the, the 
those are the kitchens of old. Um, and I think yeah, you you mentioned earlier on about the the Gordon Ramsay, the kitchen nightmares. I mean, those that's 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 TV producers making Gordon behave like that. Gordon was a tough, tough man in the kitchen. Um, and before Gordon, Marco was even tougher. I mean, Gordon worked under Marco. Um, Gordon and Marco are both good mates. And, um, yeah, we don't see each other very often. I see Marco more than Gordon because Marco comes into Southampton. But, um, yeah, back in those days, you, you run a kitchen through fear. Yeah. And, yeah, I'd send someone to go and work for Gordon or for or for Marco. And in actual fact, they liked it on the CV that they worked there, but they hated it because they wouldn't be allowed to do anything. And they'd be shouted up. Uh, but in today's world, and I think it's, it's interesting, it's, it's happened a lot since COVID. COVID and all that um, furlough and you can work, you can't work and everything has changed the work-life balance in my world phenomenally. Because chefs were were born to work 15-hour days, six, seven days a week. Now, no way. They all want a four-day week. They all want to work. They'll still do 12 hours a day, but they want four days a week. They want three days off. Um, yeah, when I first started, you did a six-day week. And do you think that is the critical moment when the kitchens changed from being that sort of rolled with an iron fist to actually let's, let's nurture and empower the teams and work more together? Yeah, the worst chefs were, were nicer anyway. I mean, Anton Mosiman was a lovely man, very calm, Swiss, and um, ran very good, productive kitchens, schooling people, teaching people. Um, and I suppose I always think when I look back at when I was the shouting, hollering one, um, and if ever I shout and holler in today, which is very rare, I actually think it's, it's, it's a very poor part of me and normally you're shouting and hollering because you've got it wrong and you're blaming somebody else. And if you if you haven't taught them how to do it and then you shout at them for not doing it, it's you're the mistake, not that person. And I think and I see it sometimes in the kitchen and I'll, I'll notice a head chef or a sous chef um, shout at a younger member of staff or tell him off and I'll watch and I'll wait. Yeah, I'll find something to say, oh, that's great, thank you. And it's sort of, then I'll, that head or sous chef or whoever's, said something quite quite tough that I just will get him to one side so no one can see him and I'll turn around and say before t- tonight's service you have to at least three times tell him he's done something good and they look at me and I say you were right Bollockin you were right yeah because it was wrong but I don't want that young person going home with that bad thought in his head I want going home with good thoughts and there's two reasons for doing that it's one because you want loyalty and you want that person to enjoy work because we do work long hours, but also it's security because if you've really pissed him off, he's not going to come to work tomorrow and your life is going to be worse. Yeah, it's like, again, like it's just it's kind of something bubbles up in my head when you say that. And I remember a, a really great leader that I worked for who was, who was a role model for me. I, um, I was leading my first ever team. It was back when I was, I was working for England Rugby and I had my first team of people that I was leading. And I was talking about when I was going to have my, my one-to-one meetings with them. And, um, and the person said to me, they said, always do your one-to-ones on a Friday, if you can. And I was thinking, well, Friday, really, I've got, I've got stuff to do with like myself on a Friday. And, and I was like, what, what's the reason for that? And they said, well, the fr- Friday one-to-ones, first thing, if you're giving people feedback and receiving feedback from them, that's part of being a leader. You need to have those moments, whether, you know, you're in the kitchen and it's, it's at the end of a, end of a service or, or whatever. But for us, it was it was Fridays. We were out, you know, in the field, training, etc. So Fridays was our point to come together. 
And, and they said exactly, they said a, a really similar thing that actually you want to have that moment where you send them off for the weekend, knowing what they've achieved this week. Even if they've had a crappy week and there's stuff you need to pick up on, pick it up, but try and do that as close in proximity to the moment they've done it as possible. But we want to send people away at the weekend, knowing what they've done well, why we think they did it well, so that they can be productive and chill out over the weekend, but also they can come back on Monday. And I think, I think a lot of leaders in, in business forget about that, that actually this is a one-to-one, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to give you some feedback and, and not think about like staff and employees are, are, the, are the lifeblood of a business, aren't they? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Ben, ben mentioned role models as well there. And it'd be really interesting just to see if you have a role model or did have a role model. And did that person change when you went from maybe shouty Alex to more sort of humble and more not caring Alex, but it seems like there's a, a shift in your, your approach to leadership and there's a certain point that that changed, but did your role model change as well? Um, actually, I've, I've never really had a strong role model. I mean, I've got chefs I admired for their for their cuisine and what they've done. Yeah, and um, that's from the, the greats of the Albert Rue of Gavroche, from yeah to um, Nico Ledenis um, of Chenico. These were three star Michelin chefs, and I got to know them and talk to them a lot. Then I, I suppose one big guy in my life um, was would be um, Jim Ratcliffe, Sir Jim. Um, and it was interesting because when we got into business together, I was still the Michelin star chef driving for the utmost um, perfection and had gone from 24 covers to a, a hotel and wanted this hotel with 60 covers and weddings and things to do as well. I wanted that hotel to have a Michelin star. And um, yeah, Jim heard that I'd hired and fired a few people and he pulled me to one side and said look that's not the Ineos way and um, I ended up having a bit of a row with him saying well I'm not Ineos I'm Alex Aiken and Le Poussin you bought into um, and I said and to be honest I don't hire and fire because I, I want to be that person I sort of I had to be in that position in, in, in that particular um, situation but you know I got up and cooked breakfast for, for, for all the customers. I washed up afterwards and I cooked lunch and I cooked dinner and I went home at one o'clock in the morning. I don't want to do that, but that instant I had to. And we sort of understood. We had a bit of a, a real headlocking, but understood each other more. And um, yeah, then looked at how he treated his staff and the way that Ineos worked. And I think that did probably steer me in a, in a slightly different way. That's not to say he's not very tough and if he wants to fire someone, he'll fire someone. And you mentioned there about focusing or your sole focus for quite some time was getting that, that mission star. Yeah. How, how did that affect the rest of your businesses? Quite often with the clients that we've got becoming task focused on something and that becomes your, your passion for, for whatever length of time often leads to the detriment of uh, others, the team, other individuals in the team or the, or the business. So how did that affect you concentrating so much on that one goal or did it affect the rest of the businesses? Well, at that time, um, when I was really driving for it, um, it was only me and the wife, and it was very family. And I suppose it affected us a little bit, but 46 years later, we're still married. Um, but going to the, when we went to the bigger business, um, I still wanted it, but I had started to delegate. So um, I think I kept it fairly, uh, fairly sane. I'm, yeah, people wanted, wanted to work with me because I had the Michelin star. and. I think I was tough but fair, and so though we drove for it, um, it was in a, it was in a quite a relaxed way. Yeah, it's interesting. You um, the tough but fair 
is like resonates with me with something you said you said earlier we said about the um i think it was the bar manager or the barman you know saying good day mate and, and and you said i'm not i'm not your mate i'm i'm alex or chef and i think in leadership there's that there's that professional well actually fact can i just stop you there because i'm yeah I, of course i particularly didn't use that exact phrase i didn't want to okay. say i am not your mate i said yeah don't call me mate call me chef or call me alex because to say to someone, he's quite new with us and he's he's affectionate and good guy, to say, I, the old Alex would have turned around and said, I am not your mate. Who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> you know? So it's the terminology, but it's the, the, the issue the in new, that case. The new not Alex the, the chooses a bit more carefully and it's going to be a blood confrontation. Don't don't call me mate, call me chef or Alex. Um, but if I just said, I'm not your mate, that's putting a really tough barrier in front of someone and the chances are he'll leave there in today's world. And I didn't want Max, he's a good barman. But I also got to educate him. He can't call people mate because it's, 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 it's Australian. But um, we'll get there. And yeah. that, that's that sense of pride and the passion and the standards that we've, we've talked about as well, isn't it? Having that, that, those standards to call each other by either the, the formal roles or sir, chef. Yeah, and I think well. thank you for picking up on the, on, on the change in, in, in terminology there because it underlines the point I wanted to come to, which is there's a, there's a need in leading for professional distance but you don't want to put a hard barrier up. And I think you just described that really, really eloquently there, that actually it's that change in positioning of what you say, that actually there's, there's a respect bit, but we don't want to put a hard barrier up, which, uh, which I think is really important. So fast forward to, to today, and you've already mentioned the jetty and, and, and the journey there. Um, I have to say, um, we both live very close to, to the jetty in, in Muddyford and um, we're big fans. I love the food. I love the service. Um, we've we've celebrated there. It's it, it's one of our one of our favourites. And you mentioned Limewood as well, which is which is a jewel in the New Forest. Um, you're now in a role where you're leading leaders. So you know you're you said directing already earlier when we were talking about. So how do you? Because this would be really helpful to to some of our listeners who are they've they've led teams before but now their businesses are growing and they're moving to stepping once removed again to leading leaders how do you how do you have an impact in a service on the quality of the service etc whilst you're not directly leading but you're empowering someone else it's not a tough question it's i do it and it's how to put it into words i suppose there's a lot more i still lead by example and i will still um for example if I go into a, into the restaurant and there's a, a coffee cup on a table, um, I pick, if, if I'm walking past that coffee cup, cup going to the kitchen, I'll take it to the kitchen. And um, but as another leader will actually look at it, and this tends, especially the new leaders, they think they're now they've risen above that status. So I've led by example because I've done it. But it's interesting. You, if I said to one of the new leaders, "Oh, get that coffee cup moved," he will go and find a junior member of staff to pick the coffee cup. And you probably go to the kitchen to find someone to then come do it. I said, look, no, you, know, you are a leader. You are now a restaurant manager, but you you still have to be a, a, grounded with your team and work with them. And why didn't you just pick up the cup and take it with them, with you? Yeah, you're just, so I, again, I'm, I'm leading by example, but also I, I make note all day long and then I'll sit down, talk to them, go through, not an appraisal, but, Go through things um, like with the restaurant manager telling, yeah, the the antipathy, and he's got to stop his familiarity because we're that's the Jetty in Southampton's in a five star hotel, and you 
can't call a five-star hotel customer a mate. You know, it's uh, you get away with it at the pig. The pig will call you dude, mate, lad. Yeah, but you can't in, in an environment that I work in. Something you mentioned there that actually we haven't touched upon, but we have in every other uh, podcast we've done, was sort of debriefs and reflection. And you mentioned reflection and taking notes, but actually that's something that has only just occurred to me in the kitchen where you haven't got much time. Do you allow time for a debrief after the service or after a really busy evening? How do you do that in, in the kitchen environment or well, the hospitality well, environment? First of all, it starts at the beginning, uh, the beginning of every service, sort of say 15 minutes before 12, 15 minutes before 6. There will be a briefing, and that briefing will be telling um, all the teams who's coming in, um, what people have got birthdays, anniversaries, um, special customers, and then they could be a wonderful customer that's going to buy the most expensive wine and most expensive dishes, or it could be the special customer that is a, a royal pain in the ass, but they're still a customer, and you've still got to look after them. We've accepted the booking, and and so you, you you have a briefing before every service, and then yes, you have a debriefing, especially if something's gone wrong. But also, things have gone remarkably well. Um, we're, we're, we're dealing with feedback more today than ever before because of the keyboard warriors and social media, you know, the trip advisors, uh, Google reviews. And we will pull all these out. Um, yeah, we will go through the teams, not every day, um, but we will go through them on what we've done wrong, what we've done right. Um, and it's, it's often it's a process. But the most, and I think this is really important in any business, um, is communication, communication, communication. I think virtually every complaint we have will lead back to a lack of communication somewhere along that line where something hasn't been communicated correctly. And do you an- uh, analyze each each complaint that you get? Do you dig down into to what happened, that root cause analysis? Do you yeah, spend time do. to do um, that? Yeah. And, and the first thing you've got to do is have humility because we all think we're perfect. And, um, yeah, we might even be right, but we still have to analyze it to make sure we are right. And, um, but if you, don't, if you don't look at your wrongs, you're never going to make them right. And then, yeah, if you want to improve, you want to drive your business, you want to make your business better, then you have to review them. That's the reoccurring theme so far, I think, in terms of uh, the high-performing teams we've been speaking to. Uh, and the dog agrees, obviously, in the background there. Um, communication, but also th- those debriefs. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I think, um, go on, we can... Yeah, we no problem. We can no edit problem. this, so it's fine. No worries. So coming back to that that debrief bit, I think I think that's that's really important in in the in the in the in the restaurant scenario with your debrief. Is that um, is that like a collegiate atmosphere? Is everyone giving and sharing feedback, or does that come from from the leaders, the managers? How does it work? At times, we'll do a complete um, team debrief, but generally, it's between the um, the the managers. I mean, most of the what we call the runners, most of the younger team, they just want to yeah, have, have a glass of wine at the end of the evening and disappear. But it's quite good sometimes to have that glass of wine with a conversation about service, what went well, what went wrong. I think between Ben and I, we've sat in some pretty impressive debris, like the, the, the Red Arrows, the military, you with the rugby background. But it'd be really interesting to come in and, if that was right, to sit with you and listen to one of your debriefs. That's one area that we've never done before that would be really interesting to yeah. just to see how that's run. Like one sector that would be so interesting, fascinating to see. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, Alex, there's, there's, there's one, one final piece of our conversation, which is, which is really important to us, which is your West Peak example. So we founded, founded the business and, and named it West Peak based on, on the concept that 
that people kind of get a level of, of skill or experience and think they've reached the summit of, of, of mastery of their craft. And they realize that, that that's actually a false summit. And when they put it into practice, they're like, wow, there's actually a whole lot more I need to, I need to learn about this. So I'd love you to share with us, if you could, and reflect back on, on a West Peak moment that, that you've had in your career. Oh, I mean, the, the obvious one would be very easy that once you've got your one Michelin star, it's even harder to get number two and number three. Um, but but I I think once I've got the one star, I've reached that peak. Um, so that's not really, yeah, that, that peak. Um, so where have I gone somewhere when, I, I suppose it's when, when I first started out, yeah, I thought I was just going to open a restaurant. I was going to start cooking and earning money. And um, then this whole raft of um business planning um spreadsheets for banks and uh and that and that whole you know that the VAT section we had because we haven't filled out a VAT return since we opened and um <laughs> yeah. Luckily in those days you weren't fined. So it was yeah, my peak was I opening and running a restaurant, being a really nice host, cooking great food was easy. But it's the business side. And um, I mean, in the end, I've been very successful on the business side as well. I mean, uh, the jetty was a failing business when it was road south and um, losing 100,000 a year. And I can tell you now, it, it makes far more than that year in, year out. It's a much more success. So, yeah, I suppose that's that was my, yeah, you think you're doing a great job. And then you find there's more to do behind that job. And I think every, every service ends up being like that in some ways. Yeah. One example I thought you were going to say was achieving the, the Michelin star was sort of your summit, but actually maintaining it and not losing it was actually really hard. So I can imagine you sort of sit on your haunches having received it and then you're like, oh, that's the hard work done. But actually, it's not. There's even more there work to continue. There is more hard work to keep it. Um, it's, and I suppose when I walked away from... My own restaurant at Poussin, which had the Michelin star, and yeah, we were going to go for a Michelin star at Limewood. When I walked away and said, "Look, I'm, I'm done in. I'm, I'm going to go back. I want to go back to. I want to go back to cooking." And that's why, I, yeah, fell in love with the location of the jetty and created the jetty. But lost where I was going with that. But the 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 running the business is now really my passion and growing people. So yeah, the other thing is going to what I'm doing now, cooking great fish, running great little restaurants, and not worrying about the Michelin star is a lot of weight off my shoulder. So yeah, the, the, the toughest thing with having a Michelin star is the, the, the second peak is trying to maintain it. You're absolutely right. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, Thank you so much for, for, for sharing your insights. I think like, I, I look at, look at this conversation and, and your journey, your career journey so far, and like I see someone now, you said like developing people a number of times and giving them opportunities so so they can thrive in their lives, not just their careers. And your your ability to flex from you know someone who who wants to be an exceptional chef to to someone who's been a really successful business person, people developer, as well as exceptional chef. So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the How They Lead podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and learned something new about the world of high performance. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. And don't forget to subscribe to the How They Lead podcast on your favorite platform 
so you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep pushing yourself to reach your full potential and evolve the way you perform. And remember, just because something has always been done a certain way, doesn't mean doing it a new way can't work. <laughs>